this one with the face? Oh, that? Oh, no, 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 no. You're not ready to step into the court of the Crimson King. Welcome to This Is Comp, a series of Discord and Rhyme minisodes where we crawl through various artist compilations, song by song. Roll call, John McFerrin. Mike DeFabio. Dan Watkins. Amanda Rogers. <laughs> I'm running the clips and making smart-ass remarks. <laughs> so we are still covering In Defense of Prog Rock, tracks 9 through 12. As a reminder, this is a compilation that Mike put together a few years back. Uh, we've been having a lot of fun talking about what he decided to put on here, and we're going to keep doing that. So, Mike, what's next? What's next is uh, the first, and I think only, if if I'm not mistaken, representation of the North American continent on on this compilation. It's Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention with Inca Rhodes. Frank Zappa as Prague is definitely a an oversimplification to say the least, but he's also not not that. And his discography is enormous enough that you'd think it would be a harder decision to figure out what what Zappa track I was going to put on here. But no, nah, from the beginning, it pretty much had to be Inca Rhodes uh, because this is as Prague as Zappa gets. You know how people talk about, uh, you know, how music is is really the silence in between the notes. Well, Zappa never heard of that. <laughs> Zappa ab- abhorred a vacuum. I don't think a bar goes by in this song, which is about eight minutes long, uh, that doesn't have something zany going on. It's just absolutely packed with with wackiness and. That, that might be one of the, the aspects of, of Zappa that might put some people off, that just that there's so much coming at you. But uh, I think this is as uh, 
approachable a, a Zappa track as as any I could have picked. For one thing, it's uh, it's from a period uh, where he, he wasn't focusing so much on uh, the gross-out humor. For this song in particular, uh, he, he was writing about uh, the Nazca lines and whether they were made by aliens and, and Art Bell, stuff like that. But, uh, you know, as the song progresses, it, it turns into just more free associative surrealism and everybody starts singing guacamole queen guacamole queen guacamole queen and also i wanted to to pick something from this lineup of the mothers because uh Progressive rock has a, a reputation as as being an an overwhelmingly white male genre, and I'm I'm not gonna say that it's it's not, but you know it's it's not that by necessity. You know, you look at uh, the the this lineup of the Mothers, and it was it was as integrated a band as as you got around that time. Uh, you have George Duke on on lead vocals and, and keyboards here, and. Uh, I especially want to draw attention if if you weren't if you didn't notice it already uh, to the presence of Ruth Underwood on percussion because she just dominates this track to the point where at the very end of the song they shout her out on Ruth on Ruth ah, that's Ruth and that's anytime you hear uh, a Zappa track from this period where somebody goes ah, that's that's referencing Ruth Underwood's distinctive laugh on Ruth on Ruth. That's why I picked this song. Dad, what do you think of it? God, where to begin? Um, <laughs> I, like, I like your initial question of, you know, where does Zappa fit into Prague? Because he's such his own thing that I struggle to even consider him in the Prague genre. But you're right. If there is an era that would fit in Prague, it is this era. And yeah. I think maybe it's just because there's a specific tone to the synths and stuff that kind of fit into that a little bit more. That's part of it for sure. Yeah. Because he's always had these weird, twisty, complicated vocal lines and stuff, or, or uh, melodies, you know. So it's nothing new to this era, but it does sort of fit more this Roxy and elsewhere and one size fits all era, the mid seventies. Um, and you know, you talk about like the the lack of space between notes. To me, the real centerpiece of this song is that guitar solo. Yeah. <laughs> Because, you know, and we discussed this a bit in the Freak Out episode where Zappa's not known for wearing his heart on his sleeve very much. Yeah. There's usually about eight arm's lengths of irony between him and a sincere emotional, you know, uh, idea. Whereas I think the guitar solos are where he actually lets his guard down and emotes. And I think this ranks highly up there among, and I, I know not everybody has a, the, the patience for his extended guitar workouts, but I think this is really one of his best. Um, it really goes to a lot of like really uh, kind of emotional melodic areas. And it really follows a narrative. Uh, 
Yeah, it was it was plucked from uh, the the full guitar solo is actually on a live album called "You Can't Do That on Stage Anymore" Volume Two, and he wisely pulled it out of there and and tightened it up a little bit um, and fit it into this the studio concoction, and it works incredibly well. Like he it doesn't just sound flown in randomly; it really works well here. But um, other than that, yeah, mentioning George Duke, he is in the short running of my favorite Zappa vocalists by far. Mm. Like, I think he really brings a soulfulness and really brings the humor that works well with Zappa. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's funny because he was actually not a vocalist before he was in Zappa's band. Really? And Zappa goaded him into it. And he is, was a great vocalist, just kind huh. of who was just shy about it. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, I could talk all day about this. What do you got, John? <laughs> so I have actually kind of a a, a somewhat complicated relationship in, in my mind with uh, this track and actually the entire One Size Fits All album because I love the Roxy lineup. I love that era as a live act. I like, even really like it as a studio act, I, and I do really like One Size Fits All, the album for which this comes. There's something slightly sterile sounding about the album to me relative to how I uh, like when I have a, a, a mental picture of what uh, this era of Zappa sounds like, I always gravitate um, towards Roxy and elsewhere. And, and Grant, I know that a lot of that has studio overdubs, but you can also hear like a lot of the the, the more pure live versions of them. With 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 one size fits all the 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 studio album and then Inca Rhodes in its studio version, like for some reason I always hear it just as a little less organic uh, than I do when I hear this piece as a live number. And so like I, I I would honestly have to say that of all the versions of Inca Rhodes, the studio version is probably my least favorite, hmm. and I still really like it. But um, like even something like the the guacamole queen, guacamole queen, guacamole queen part, like for some reason, I always have more fun listening to that in a live setting uh, than what it almost feels like. It's like, OK, we're now at that stage in this <laughs> in, the, in the studio version. And again, I, and I feel bad saying all this because, again, as an abstract concept, I really like this track. I just never, ever uh, want to seek it out in the studio version. Um, and then something I want to mention, Dan, you you, you mentioned the the guitar part. Uh, in the middle. Uh, so it, it's worth mentioning that Inca Rhodes is by many measures, like the most beloved Zappa song of all time. I'm my, my position on it is, is somewhat of a minority position. And one of the ways uh, in which this, this love for it has, has manifested in which uh, Zappa himself recognized, um, you know, it's greatest on a certain level is there was a, there was a set in the early eighties of, of three albums called shut up and play your guitar, uh, shut up and play your guitar some more and return of the sun of shut up and play your guitar. And eventually these were all uh, released on a single set. Uh, what, what was interesting is that the title track of each of those three LPs is a solo from a version of Inca Rhodes. It's from uh, three performances they did of it at the Hammersmith Odeon in, in 1979. Um, and, and I always find it interesting that like solos from this is what he used as the representation as, you know, the, the title track, the centerpiece for each of these individual sets. <laughs>
again, Inca Roads, you know, as a general thing, it's something I really like. I recognize that Zappa fans, you know, love it more than I do. And that they're probably right to love it more than I do. Um, but it's still really good. If I had to pick a Zappa track, I probably would pick Peaches and Regalia. That would have been the other one I chose. But it's yeah. also, but the but the problem is, then it's also, uh, you know, not from his most proggy era. It's from uh, from a, yeah. a straight jazz fusion album. And then things get complicated, and I get that. Um, so yeah, it's it, it's really good. I would have picked something different, but it's your comp. <laughs> <laughs> My pick would have been uh, Echidna's Orif of You. I think that's, that's like a, the the craziest yeah. of his proggy instrumental prowess but then you have to attach it to right. what comes after <laughs> otherwise it feels incomplete yeah so much of the roxy stuff is you know you can't separate it from the big sort of medleys they're part of so yeah inca roads it is all right i think we're done here mike what do we have next what we have next uh by way of uh sort of preamble because I made this compilation myself. I, I get to see it as sort of a uh, a living, breathing document, if if you will. You know, it's uh, it can always change. You know, so and you're not a in defense of prog rock originalist. I am not. <laughs> it's you know, if any of you out there are thinking, well, why didn't he include this? You know, I I might listen to your suggestions and and include something you thought was missing on a, a future edition. But I say all that to say this is uh, from the original version of In Defense of Prog Rock. And it's the song that got me into Renaissance. <laughs> <laughs> this next song is Hocus Pocus by Focus. Oh, God. <laughs> This is the first time I'm actually hearing this in years. <laughs> oh. You're welcome. <laughs> was formed in Amsterdam in 1969 with, and I'm going to get this right, Tij van Leer on vocals, keyboards, and flute, Martin Dresden on bass, Hans Kluver on drums, and Jan Ackerman on guitar. They worked the Amsterdam club scene, mostly playing covers of songs by bands like Traffic, Procol Harum, Moody Blues, and they got their first big break when they were tapped to perform as the pit band for the Dutch production of the musical Hair. What Moody Blues songs did they cover? I'm very curious. I do not know. 
If anybody knows, tell me. You'd probably love their versions, I'm sure. I'm sure I would. In 1971, the band released its debut, Focus Plays Focus, which did not make much of an impact upon release, but the band did manage to catch the attention of Sire Records founder Seymour Stein, who signed them to a deal with the American label. Meanwhile, guitarist Jan Ackerman was becoming increasingly unhappy with the band's rhythm section and came to Van Leer with the ultimatum, basically, either they go or I go. And Van Leer reluctantly agreed and brought in Cyril Havermans on bass and Pierre Van Der Linden on drums. With this new lineup, the band recorded its follow-up album, Focus 2, or Moving Waves, as it was titled in the U.S., and a shorter edit of the leadoff track, Hocus Pocus, was released as a single, and its popularity pushed the album to number two on the UK charts and number eight in the US. The song itself was supposedly written as a rock parody because the band had realized that the album was missing just a straight-up rock song. And I did skim through the album and confirm that this is correct, that anyone who bought the album expecting a rocked-out yodel song was going to be sorely disappointed. Regardless, this is, I think, an insanely fun and memorable track. For all of its silliness, in between each round of Van Leer's yodels, scats, and what have you, the band truly rocks, hammering away at this great heavy riff. And if you have not seen the band's live performance on Midnight Special from 1973, I implore you to check it out. Because it's one thing to hear this, and it's another to actually see Van Leer doing all of this in close-up. They're introduced <laughs> by Gladys Knight. How did this happen? <laughs> <laughs> and even since its initial success, the song has had a pretty good life uh, in movies and TV. And these days, I primarily think of it as the closing music to the show Saxondale, in which Steve Coogan plays a former uh, band roadie turned exterminator. Good show. Mellotron. But, uh, what do you guys think? Mike, why is this here? <laughs> why is this here? Well, because I think it's just great. It is great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so much fun. If you've listened to our episode on Ashes Are Burning by Renaissance, you, you've heard me tell the story about how I ended up replacing this song on the compilation with Can You Understand by Renaissance because Amanda really hates this song. Um, and, and that is, you know, a, a simplified version of the story. But uh, th there are other reasons it was kind of gnawing at me as, as not the best choice for inclusion. One of the reasons is that if, if you're not me, this song's really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> there was there was apparently no one in the studio with them to say focus. That's annoying. <laughs> but uh, one of the other reasons, the the main other reason uh, that I, I felt like it it didn't really fit on here is that against all odds, seemingly uh, this was a big radio hit. <laughs> I actually I actually was introduced to, to this song hearing it on the radio. Yeah. And it was the long version. Yeah. Me too. But it was, you know, it was on the same radio station that introduced me to Frank Zappa's Montana. So I didn't really I didn't realize it was like a, a major hit single. So yeah, there's there's always the possibility that, that someone would look at the 
the track list for my original comp and go, <sighs> Hocus Pocus. Everyone knows that, Mike. It was in Baby Driver. <laughs> so I, I felt like I should include something a little less famous in its place. And hey, yeah, the Renaissance were conveniently right there. And I, I think it, it fits better into the album. But I, I do still really love Hocus Pocus. <laughs> it's, I mean, I mean the, the rocking sections are really what sell it. But, you know, you've got a section with yodeling. You've got whatever that, like, hee-haw style beatboxing is. <laughs> Every little break in the song, they come up with something more ridiculous than the last section. And I agree with, with Dan. The, the video of them performing this is something to see because rather than perform an edited version of the song to to fit it into the time they were given they just played the whole song twice as fast which makes it twice as ridiculous a song speak briefly in my own defense <laughs> please regarding the song being left off of the comp i had zero knowledge of this <laughs> i don't even remember how it came up that i don't like the song but what mike when you gave us all copies of this prog comp it was the first time we all got together this is in 2019 it would have been yeah and we're you know i'm looking at the track list and i asked you so what was your methodology how did you pick all these songs you know the question that we're answering right now in this series of bonus episodes and you said well it used to have hocus pocus on it but i took that off because i know you don't like it <laughs> and i said hey wait what <laughs> and just didn't really know how to feel about that. <laughs> but I must have made an impression in my dislike of the song. Oh, I just didn't want to give. <laughs> I mean, yeah, th th you, you the, the skip button is easily accessible, but it's true. <laughs> but th then you it, you lose the flow that way. I wanted I wanted, to, I wanted to, to make something that you could listen to all the way through. And you know what? I appreciate that a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> It was extremely considerate of you. And that Renaissance song that you put in its place is really, really great. It is. So, yes. Thank thank you for hating this song so much. <laughs> oh, you're very welcome. Anytime. I'm happy to hate things you like. <laughs> but I, I, I will say, though, that the, the guitar parts of that song, are, they do kick kind of a lot of ass. It's just the yodeling parts that are... Maybe the worst thing I've ever heard. <laughs> worst, understandable. <laughs> so as for me, uh, when I first listened to this straight through for the first time, because I again I'd, I'd heard the clip um, that made it into the Renaissance episode. Obviously, um, I'll tell you what what this made me think of. So, so I have not yet uh, seen the movie Knives Out, but I've seen lots of memes and lots of clips. It made me think of uh, that one scene where Daniel Craig goes, it makes no damn sense. Compels me, though. <laughs> 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 like, I listen to this and I'm just like, 
this this is completely bonkers. I can't believe this is going. And I remember like having the thought, you know, I don't know, four minutes, five minutes in, whatever, whenever like the flu comes, it's like, oh no, are they Jethro Toll now? And they did that. I was like, okay, well, I guess we're just grafting that into this. Like, there, there's one part of my mind that actually wants to gravitate hard towards Amanda's reaction to this. But then the rest of me are just like, are you sure? You, you don't want to just put this on one more time and just hear all the bonker stuff. It's like, I, I got to yield to my weird dorky prog master. Like... This is this is completely bonkers. I get. I'm, I'm still not sure if I like it, but I'm almost certainly going to listen to it like ten more times to try and figure it out. <laughs> and you know what? This is one of the few songs in the world that I remember when I heard it for the first time. It was I, I was working at Target, and I went into the stock room for something, and the the guys working back there had the classic rock station playing, and it was in the middle of the yodeling part, and I just stopped in my tracks. <laughs> I think I got in trouble because I was back there for so long because I just I couldn't leave until I found out what the hell was happening. <laughs> right. And, and it's not like you so can I Google just, the lyrics afterwards. In Target. Yes. Well, no, it was in the stock room, like in the back where customers couldn't oh, hear it. Okay. It was just it wasn't the... over the la- it wasn't over the public <laughs> no, loudspeaker. No, 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 no. <laughs> that would be the greatest thing I'd ever it heard. It was just yeah, the guys in the back room were listening to the radio. Uh so yeah, I just I like just stood there like what is this? And fortunately the DJ came on after because they don't always yeah. and said that was hocus pocus by focus. And I went Okay, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> if there was ever a band called Focus and they put out a song called Hocus Pocus, that's what it would sound like. But it it left an impression. And I've and it was kind of the same as John. I was like, I'm pretty sure I hate this, but also it's it, I've remembered it ever since. You remember where you were when you first hear this song. I remember. <laughs> yeah. You met your greatest nemesis. That isn't blinded by the light. (laughs) Yeah, I don't remember the first time I heard that song, but I hate it a whole lot. (laughs) Amazing. All right, I think we're done there. Mike, what do we have next? What we have next is the first cover of the compilation, and uh, it's the second appearance of Keith Emerson. This is the nice with their cover of Leonard Bernstein's America from West Side Story.
liked how you can hear the clicking of the keys. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Back in episode seven, I covered the knife briefly in the context of the history of Emerson, Lincoln, Palmer. As they were the band that keyboardist Keith Emerson came from immediately prior to ELP. But I will provide a more elaborate history here. The Nice had their origins in a band called the T-Bones, where Emerson and bassist Lee Jackson played together until the band dissolved in early 1967. Emerson then spent some time playing in a band called the VIPs, where he ultimately drew the attention of the American soul singer P.P. Arnold, who is in the market for a new backing band. Emerson agreed to organize and play in her backing band, but only if this backing band could open her shows as their own act, in a setup roughly akin to the arrangement that The Shadows had with Cliff Richard. Arnold and her manager, Andrew Lug Oldham, also the manager and producer for the Rolling Stones, agreed. And Emerson brought in Lee Jackson, drummer Ian Haig, and guitarist David O'List. They played a handful of shows in their half-backing, half-standalone setup before Arnold decided to go home to the U.S., and they secured a contract for themselves from Oldham. Haig decided that he didn't like the kind of music that the band was moving towards, and they replaced him with new drummer Brian Davison. The band went on to release two and a half studio albums and two and a half live albums, with the last of these coming in 1971, a year after Emerson disbanded the group to join Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, where he continued to staff his keyboards on a regular basis with a Hitler youth dagger given to him by a former roadie for the nice named Lemmy Kilmister. So as for America, America is an instrumental arrangement primarily centered around Hammond organ of the song from the same name in the Leonard Bernstein and Stephen Sondheim musical West Side Story. I like to be in America, okay by me in America, everything free in America, for a small fee in America. With the Latin American feel of the original stripped away by hammering the alternating 6-8 and 3-4 measures of the original into a consistent 4-4, except for the middle section with the solos in a manner similar to how they shoved the 9-8 time signature of Dave Brubeck's Blue Rondo a la Turk into 4-4 for the track Rondo. America was the band's second single, released in June 1968, and the band actively courted controversy to draw public attention to it. Emerson described this in public as an instrumental protest song, and their record company, Immediate Records, didn't take half measures in this regard. For starters, in the U.S., the song was released under the title America, open parentheses, Second Amendment, close parentheses, a reference to the right to bear arms enshrined in the U.S. Constitution. And quoting from Wikipedia, the promotional poster for this single featured, quote, the group members with small boys on their knees with superimposed images of the faces of John F. Kennedy, Robert F. Kennedy, and Martin Luther King Jr. on the children's heads. End quote. The Nice themselves were amusingly double-faced as to whether they wanted the song associated with controversy. On the one hand, they publicly observed that this promotional poster was 
keeping many record stores from stocking the single, and that this might be harmful to their success. And on the other hand, Emerson burned an American flag during a performance of this at an anti-apartheid charity concert in London's Royal Albert Hall, getting the group a lifetime ban from the venue. And as a side note, when the Nice toured the United States for the first time, Emerson claimed that the band was summoned to the U.S. Embassy and had to swear on the Bible not to burn the American flag again, a promise that they only broke once thereafter. The song also ends in a hilariously disturbing way, with P.P. Arnold's three-year-old son saying, quote, America is pregnant with promise and anticipation, but is murdered by the hand of the inevitable, end quote. With promise and anticipation, but is murdered by the hand of the inevitable. Also, it begins with over-the-top, pompous church organs backed by people screaming over the sound of gunfire. I know composers who use subtext, and they're all cowards. <laughs> anyway, I adore America. It's astonishingly vulgar, but man, this is just something you're going to have to deal with in the Emerson compositional universe. There's a lot of extremely tasty O-list guitar, but Emerson is the unquestionable star, interspersing occasional moments of quiet or calm and beauty with a flurry of maniacal energy especially in those rapid-fire, swirling, flushing noises that Emerson often coaxes from his instrument. Leonard Bernstein, as you might guess, hated this cover. Quote, <laughs> I loathe what they've done. They've corrupted my work. End quote. I totally understand his position. But sometimes, if you're going to find enjoyment in the world of prog rock, you have to find joy in musicians doing the wrong thing in the most hilarious way possible. And America absolutely fits the bill for me. So, Mike, why is this here? Because it rules ass. Yes. <laughs> I don't have anything to add to that description of it. Uh, although I I should also mention that they they also shove bits of uh, Dvorak's New World Symphony in there. Yes, yes, they do. Just to, just to be even more tasteless, I guess. It's glorious. I, for, for, lack of a, for lack of a better word. Uh, the nice were uh, an inconsistent band. Yes. And a big part of that, I think, is that um, progressive rock as a thing was still being figured out. Like, the Nice were one of the first bands to do a, a sidelong suite, but... Uh, it is a mess. They made the absolutely chowder-headed decision to stick an extended drum solo two minutes into the song. Yep. <laughs> oh, no. It's, yeah, so this, this, this whole... Yeah, group with orchestra doing an extended composition. It, it hadn't been worked out completely. But their best moments are so much fun. Uh, and this is, I think, chief among them. I know this this wasn't the first thing they ever released, but I, I get the feeling of just... It's introducing Keith Emerson to the world as sort of this... It's He's, he's like a mad scientist of the Hammond organ. Yes. Just this wild man. Who, yeah, he's he's throwing the organ around the stage and stabbing it. When I saw Emerson, Lake, and Palmer in the late 90s, by the way, he, he was still doing the dagger bit. <laughs> of course and, he was. 
everybody in the audience was laughing at it, myself included, but none of us can say that we weren't enjoying it because it's just it's ridiculous and over the top. But it's it's great. Come on. If you don't think there's room for that in rock and roll, you think you're just no fun. But yeah, I, th- I think this is a, a terrific cover. I mean, completely removed from all the political uh, subtext, if you can call it that. I guess it's I guess it's really more like super text. Yep. Uh, <laughs> but uh, just a, a footnote about the version I included on the compilation that I, I included a, an alternate mix that doesn't include uh, the spoken word outro. OK, because I was like confused a, by that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's there's just a long drum roll where that would ordinarily be. And that's I didn't choose that mix because of that. I just think it it sounds better. It's it's clearer. So, Dan, what do you think? Well, I'm just happy that Keith Emerson learned his lesson and never did another tacky, vulgar interpretation of a respected work ever again. Mm. He really (laughs) stayed away from that going forward. Uh, I don't have a whole lot to add. It's a lot of fun, um, but I don't really know if I have a whole lot else to say. What's funny is you actually kind of jiggle the memory loose because you mentioned Andrew Lou Goldham. And I knew I'd kind of heard this somewhere before. And when he had a show on uh, Sirius XM, he would use this as his bed music occasionally when he was doing his little, hmm. like, in-between, you know, uh, commentary during songs. Uh, but uh, that's all I have to add, really. I should also mention that I that I, I have a, uh, a a little Lego Keith Emerson where he's... <laughs> yes! You, you all in, in podcast land listening can't can't see this, of course, but my co-hosts can. And you can see he's he's got a little... He's got a little dagger... That he's stabbing into his keyboard, and it's got it's it's a it's a, some kind of a modular synthesizer because it's got little patch cables. Um, but yes, I'm I'm very proud to 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 own this. I'm not a loser. <laughs> I have, from the same company. I have a, a setup of of uh, Genesis in their 1973 setup, and 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 Peter Gabriel is is dresses a a little miniature flower. So <laughs> we're all on the same page here. I have a quick question. Is there any evidence to back up that story about them having to go to the embassy? Emerson claims it happened. That's the only evidence. I don't think I believe. <laughs> I don't entirely believe it either, but it's a lot of fun. <laughs> it is. But here's the thing. Burning the flag is protected under the First Amendment. Sure. And yeah. they're not even American citizens, so none of it applies to them anyway. <laughs> also, I mean, Leonard Bernstein, he was, he, he was the, the radical sheet conductor. <laughs> I would, I would, I, I expected more from him. Yeah, what are you going to do? That's that's also probably the reason uh, he he declined to conduct Emerson's piano concerto. Yep. Well, that ah. it's it's not very good. Yeah. Same with pirates. So Emerson was dead to him after that, huh? Leonard Bernstein. All right. Let's move on to the last one of the set. Mike, what do we got? Uh, do you think you weren't going to see these guys? There's there's only one proper way to close disc one of this set it's king crimson with 21st century schizoid man it's about damn time
Now, similar to the Soft Machine, who we discussed in our prior episode, King Crimson is a band that has gone through a dizzying number of distinct eras and personnel changes. For the sake of brevity, we will be focusing on entirely King Crimson 1.0 here. And unfortunately, this is the only time we will be discussing King Crimson on this podcast. So, Thank you for listening to yes. This Is Comp. A subset- <laughs> oh, wait. <laughs> we might discuss them later. We'll see. The origins of King Crimson began with Giles, Giles, and Fripp, an English trio that consisted of brothers Michael and Peter Giles on drums and bass, respectively, and Robert Fripp on guitar. The band drew from a playful mix of pop, psychedelic rock, folk, jazz, and classical styles. Their sole album, The Cheerful Insanity of Giles, Giles, and Fripp, was released in April of 1968 to little attention. He runs a little shop with a room at the top and a mortgage all around it. His little lady will be 53 on Monday and his only son's in the Navy. But he doesn't shout about it. No, he doesn't shout about it. He's a one in a million. He's a one in a million. He runs a little show. However, the band's lineup did expand later that year with the addition of Ian McDonald on keyboards and woodwinds. Peter Giles left the band soon after, making room for bassist and vocalist Greg Lake and lyricist Peter Sinfield. With this new lineup in place, the band changed its name to King Crimson and shifted toward a new direction with the addition of a Mellotron into the band's arsenal. Mellotron. The band consciously turned away from pop elements and leaned into a darker, more musically complex style. Their debut album, In the Court of the Crimson King, was released in October 1969, reaching number five on the UK charts and number 28 on the US Billboard. The initial reviews were somewhat mixed, Robert Criscow gave it a D plus, deeming it ersatz shit. Hmm. Whatever that means. <laughs> sure. But Pete Townsend called it an uncanny masterpiece. And of course, it has since gone on as an absolute milestone in progressive rock. And it is possibly the quintessential prog album. Uh, it's, and I used to spend time on the the vinyl subreddit. And there's kind of like a meme of like albums that everybody buys and they get into vinyl. And this is frequently one you always see because that album cover yeah. is just ridiculously iconic with the screaming head. It's wild. King Crimson has been working on and off for over 50 years. And yet the opening track on their debut album, 21st Century Schizoid Man, will forever be their most recognizable contribution to music. And I mean, I guess how do you really ever top that? You kind of can't. Yeah. But... It's really one of the all-time great album openers. You know, one of the things I love about it is the album starts with 30 full seconds of just this otherworldly industrial hum. Yeah. (laughs) And then, blam, that first chord comes in. And it's just, what's funny is, you know, I think I read that Ian McDonald was influenced by the Moody Blues, and that's why he wanted to get a Mellotron. And I love that this is what they did with their Mellotron. This is the, the you know, they, they, the opening of the album is basically a gimmick that Black Sabbath ripped off of their first record of having yeah. an ambient noise yeah. of just, burn. you know, that's, this is proto metal, essentially. You know, that's like that's 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 what every black metal band is is ripping off with the intro to their album. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. 
Except except black metal bands, the intro is always like 10 times louder than when the band comes in. (laughs) Here here it's the opposite. The thing to me that always sets, and and I am, I like King Crimson a lot. You will find out that I am like a, 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 a nothing on the scale of King Crimson fandom on this panel shortly. But the <laughs> thing that uh, that always sets them apart to me, among other prog bands, is how damn dark they are, like, from the start. Yeah. I mean, like, yes, could be heavy, but it was always kind of offset by, well, John Anderson, let's face it. Um, yeah. <laughs> whereas... <laughs> King Crimson was just, I mean, they were could basically be a metal band when they wanted to be. And for an album in 1969, I mean, I don't think anything, I mean, even Hendrix wasn't this like foreboding and just heavy sounding. Yeah. And, you know, and I've known this album since I was a kid. This was probably my introduction to prog rock before I even know what prog rock was. My dad had this record and it blew me away. And every time I hear this song, I kind of hear something new. And the new thing that I focus on is just how crazy the drumming is on this. Like, yeah. it is just yeah. bananas. I mean, uh, but I'll, I will let you guys go off because I'm sure you have plenty to say. Well, you know, there there was a part of me that uh, would, you know, was was goading me on to include something, you know, a little more of a, a deeper cut, like Lark's Tongues and Ass Part 2 or something, but... No, it, it had to be Schizoid Man. There was no way. I mean, for one thing, it's it's remained their signature song since the day it came out. Almost every lineup of King Crimson has played this song live at some point. Like even the 80s lineup eventually played it once they got expanded into the 90s lineup. Right. And that's almost yeah. always the the final encore closer, correct? For the most part. Uh, in the 90s, they sometimes had it in the middle. But... uh it's also wait. I thought a lot about the the sequencing of this comp, and I really wanted disc one to end. It's almost like like I I am not a musical sort of guy, but I I imagined you know when the song just finally collapses into chaos at the end. I imagined it as the sort of end of act one. You know everything's gone to hell. <laughs> curtain cla- curtain comes crashing down. You uh, drop the chandelier. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, and like how 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 are we ever going to recover from this cataclysm? That's where I wanted to to end the first half. All those uh, ominous wind noises at the beginning. I chopped that part out for the comp partly for time and also because just the end of America crashes into the first actual chord of Schizoid Man really nicely. <laughs> it does. But yeah, 21st century Schizoid Man. I mean, this it's it's just an incredible song. And I was actually, it had been so hyped up for me but before I heard it that when I actually heard the song, I was a little, it, it didn't leap out at me the way I ex- expected it to. And I think part of it was the, that tippity-tappity drum sound. Hmm. It's, I, I, ex- yeah. I expect a song like this to have, you know, big drums. But that's part of, first of all, it's, it's part of what makes this such a, a unique sounding song. But also, it's secretly a jazz song. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's not a heavy metal song. It's disguised as a heavy metal song. But the meat of the song is that long instrumental section in the middle. Over the years, that's become the main appeal of the song for me. 
I'm still impressed by just for 1969, how incredibly tight this band was. You had great musicians out there, but they weren't doing so many crazy twists and turns and these abrupt dynamic shifts. And they were all so together. Um, I, I can't imagine how audiences would have would have reacted to, to seeing this performed live. But yeah, it's it's 21st century schizoid man had to include it. Yeah, I, I feel like this is the right one to like if you if you were going to put a King Crimson song as the as the final one for this two, there would have to be starless. But I think doing it here, 21st century schizoid man is the best choice. Um, just speaking from my historical experience with with King Crimson, I initially actually had a lot of trouble getting into King Crimson uh, as a whole. My, my brother got into them really, really hard. Um, uh, his senior year of high school and, and my freshman year of college. But I did like this album right away. Like I struggled a lot um, with everything else that I heard from them initially, but I liked this one and, and I, and I, and I loved 21st century schizoid man right away. Um, the, again, like the, the combination of, of, of the, of the heaviness with, with the jazz freak out was, you know, something that, you know, I, I didn't have a context for it, but somehow like it was structured in a way that like I could still like somewhat approach it without feeling completely lost. Like on a certain level, it still felt like there was at least, you know, a little bit of mooring with the world of, of, of rock music as I kind of understood it at the time. And so in that way, it feels to me like a, a great, you know, for somebody who's, who, who's, because presumably like this compilation is for somebody who's going into prog rock cold and you, so if you're going to have that, you have to have this yeah. uh, in place to be able to, you know, explain where's it, where does it come from? Because again, yeah. so much of this album, there were albums before this that were starting to shape um, what prog rock was, but this was the, the first one that said like, okay, we actually have like a fully formed potential approach to this. One other thing I want to mention, just just uh, expanding off the thing about live uh, versions. You know, yeah, this has been played in, in all sorts of different incarnations, and there are so many great versions of 21st Century Schizoid Man um, across across the years. Um, you know, the Islands lineup. You know, they you know, they had a lot of issues live <laughs> as a there were a lot of, of conflicts but one of the 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 best things to come out of that era about it was 20 years ago there was a there was an album called ladies of the road which first disc is a compilation of some various miscellaneous live performances but the second disc is a set um called schizoid men where it starts with like the uh, uh, rendition of the first minute and a half and then it's just a strain of of middle jams uh, from various uh, performances of 21st century schizoid man taken through the tour. And like, it may sound like an unlistable mess, like as an idea, but like you put it in, like it is so compelling to hear just these, just these angry blast jams, just going full throttle. It's, it's a lot of fun. <laughs>
and yeah, it was it you know it was a it was a big highlight during uh, the mid seventies era. Um, you know when they resurrected it briefly in the nineties, people absolutely loved it. It was you know over and over again the final song in the in the reunion era um, from twenty fourteen to to twenty twenty one. Uh, it always just absolutely knocked everyone dead. You know, again, like debate can be had about what is the best King Crimson song, but this is the most important one. Yeah, like, there, there's no, mm-hmm. there's no question about that. There, this is the one that their identity is is staked. What's to. funny though, and it's uh, it's the right choice for this album being like their most famous album. I feel like it's not terribly representative of the rest of their catalog oh, not at, at all. all. Cause I mean, cause this no. is primarily Ian McDonald as the main songwriter, right? Yeah. This album. So yeah, it wasn't even Fripp's band yet. Really? Yeah. No, but then, I mean, McDonald bounced right after this one, didn't he? Yeah. But at the same time, like you, you could, you could make the argument that, you know, this is, this is the this album is the prog rock album whereas after king crimson then became its own genre Mm -hmm. like that was tangentially attached to to prog rock but it's also its own thing whereas Mm -hmm. other bands listened to this and said okay now we have a foundation to build our sound off of and ian mcdonald had to go form foreigner he had (laughs) musical plans that king crimson just wasn't going to be able to fulfill you're that hot-blooded you, gotta, <laughs> you better check it. <sighs> Just to jump off what uh, John said about, you know, how foundational this song was. This is really it has to be the first King Crimson song you hear because it's like the key to their code. Mm. Yep. That's you're not yeah. going to it's it's the secret decoder ring for the rest of, of the King Crimson catalog. You, yeah. It's none of it's going to make sense unless you, you look at it through this sort of prism they've given you. You want to hear cat food first? <laughs> it, that's the crazy thing, because it's it's not especially representative of the rest of their stuff, but you still have to hear it. Yeah, it, it all grows In from order here. for everything else to make sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, there were just a couple of points I wanted to make. The first is that, you know, as Mike said, the sequencing of this comp is really, really, really good. You clearly put a lot of thought into it. And you started this disc with Watcher of the Skies, which is the prog song. And you end it with 21st Century Schizoid Man, which is the other prog song. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and in between, you have a bunch of other prog songs. But those are like the two, you know, the the two big ones, you know, that if you're going to get into prog rock, those are the two you have to, you have to I, know. I wanted to start and end with a bang. And I also, <laughs> Dan, I thought it was really amusing when you said that you were probably the least King Crimson fan on this panel because you're the one who saw them in concert from the front row. That is true. That was by accident. Though. I did too. <laughs> oh, did you? I didn't know you were in the front row ever. I was 10 feet away from Pat Mastelotto. That's Whoa. amazing. I guess it was second row, but it was still really close. Yeah, I was in like the sixth row. That's, I've seen King Crimson <laughs> twice. Neither time did they play 21st Century Schizoid Man. Really? Not sure what, what gives bastards? there. But, you know, the, the time I saw them in, in 2019 was still one of the best concerts I've ever been to. They, they are still fantastic. I, I will say to, oh, yeah. well, I, to add to my King Crimson cred, I did see them on my honeymoon. <laughs> so there's that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that might shoot you to the yeah. top of the list, honestly. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a great Now, point. as for the actual song, I have a lot of thoughts about 21st Century Schizoid Man, but I'm going to save them because we have big King Crimson related plans for this what? podcast. I can say no more at this time. Remember what I said, the King Crimson is a genre? 
we're taking that seriously. You guys are going to love it. Special guest Robert Fripp so himself. That's right. <laughs> oh, God, can you imagine? <laughs> I'd be scared. I would be, too. That would be the most awkward podcast episode ever. <laughs> and with that, we are done with the first disc. So, up next, Mike needs a break from all the prog rock. So we'll be covering the second disc of In Defense of Prog Rock early next year. You won't want to miss it because it's where he stashed all of the weirdest bands. Speaking of weird, for our next compilation series, Rich will be taking us back into the weird mind of Weird Al Yankovic. We will be going song by song through his third and fourth polka medleys, Polka Party and Polka Your Eyes Out, featuring a wide range of hits from the late 80s and early 90s with songs by luminaries including Madonna, Peter Gabriel, Aretha Franklin, and R.E.M., as well as less legendary acts like EMF and Vanilla Ice. Hey. But for now, roll credits. You shut your mouth about EMF. What do you call this record with all these songs? This is Kong. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for listening to This Is Comp, a subsidiary of the Discord and Rhyme podcast. You can hear back episodes of this series and our regular album-focused episodes at discordpod.com. And you can also subscribe to Discord and Rhyme on your podcast app of choice. This closing theme is performed by Kenneth Crayley. You can find his music at bandcap.com. Editing and production is by Rich Bennell. We'll be back with another episode in a few weeks. And in the meantime, keep as cool as you can. The origins of King Crimson began with, well, let me, let me, is it Giles or Giles? I think it's Giles. Giles, okay. I'm going. Well, that's, that's how they say it on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Well, that's an authoritative source for me. I'll go with it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah, Giles is the watcher. His name is Rupert Giles, so I that's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> Good enough for me. <laughs> <laughs>